thank you, Eve, and thank you, Lynn. Every couple months at breakfast, my wife will ask our children, she'll say, have you ever seen a bird pushing a shopping cart? And they always say, no. It's because God takes care of the birds, right? And if his eye is on birds, then can't we be confident that his eye is on us and he'll care for our needs? So remember that bird pushing a shopping cart. His eye is on the sparrow. We know he cares for us. I'd like to invite you this morning to turn to Colossians chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible that you brought with you or on your device, you can grab one of the pew Bibles that is located in one of the chairs in front of you and follow along. I would encourage you uh, to look and see these words in the scriptures. Colossians chapter 3. On, on Wednesday nights, I've been preaching through this letter that Paul wrote to the church at Colossae. And I'm going to pick up where I left off this past Wednesday. Colossians chapter 3, and we will be reading in verse 5 in a few minutes. In 2010, a man by the name of Corey Barn took his 9-foot, 25-pound pet boa constrictor out of his cage. He did this because you cannot pet a pet boa constrictor if it is inside of his cage, and you only own a snake like that because you want to show it off to folks. I don't understand why, but apparently some folks think that it is fun to live with a reptile and keep a snake in, in your house. But Corey did, and he was especially proud of his pet snake. So when his friend came over, uh, he wanted to show it off. And it wasn't just that it was a snake. I suppose that's one thing. But this was an exotic snake. It was a boa constrictor. So he wanted to show it off to his friend. But his friend, who was at that point in time questioning his relationship with this guy, watched in horror as the boa constrictor slowly wrapped around first his arm and then his trunk and then the neck of Corey. By the time he called 911, the paramedics came and it was, it was too late. The boa constrictor strangled Corey to death. Now, Corey had lived peaceably, I suppose, with his pet boa constrictor for several years. But not all animals can be tamed, especially snakes. You can feed them, you can water them, you can take selfies with them and post them on Instagram, but that does not mean that your pet snake is a tame snake. A snake is still a snake, and it very well may turn on you. Now, it may be easy for us to see the inherent and foolish danger of living with a pet boa constrictor, but it's far more difficult for us to see the danger of living with sin, with living with personal and private sin in our lives. You see, all of us, to one degree or another, have become comfortable with certain species of sin in our lives that we feed and we allow to thrive. But sin is far more dangerous than a snake. You can cuddle up to sin like a pet. You can rename it something more uh, attractive. You can even excuse it away. You can perhaps even brag about it. But that does not take away the wild, murderous danger of sin. Our text this morning calls us to do, to respond to sin in the same way that we respond to snakes, right? We kill them. It calls us to respond in this same way 
that we would respond to a snake that had taken up residence in our house. So turn with me with that disturbing image in your mind. Turn with me now to Colossians 3, and let's read verse 5, and let's hear God's words together. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. And do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Let's pray together and ask for God's help in our time this morning. God, we thank you that you have loved us enough to give us your words, words of life that ring true in our hearts. And so we pray this morning that you would pierce our hearts and that you would work by your spirit to reveal to us what is true. You know far better than we do that we are so prone to getting comfortable with dangerous sin. And you know how before, before we knew Christ, how we had no eyes to see his beauty. So, Lord, would you work today in this service to bring glory to Christ through the obedience of your people. So please help us. So, Father, I pray that my words would fall to the ground, that they would blow away, that they would be forgotten. Just let your word remain and let it remain in power and take up residence in our heart, bearing fruit. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, we are picking up in the middle of a verse, in the middle of a chapter, in the middle of a book, and so it's helpful for us to realize what is going on in this context. In the last couple of verses, verses 1 through 4, Paul is making a big transition in the book of Colossians to move out of this big, 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 heavy theology into really practical implications for the Christian life. The book of Colossians is full of help on how to interact with your spouse and how to treat your kids and how to talk to one another and how to uh, structure your sex life and how to interact with bosses and, and all these sorts of things. It's very practical. And Paul is making that transition, and he does that by arguing that the Christian life is built entirely on our union with Christ. That the Christian must understand that our union, our identity with Christ, is the foundation for living the Christian life. It affects how you live on Tuesday afternoons at 1 o'clock, our union with Christ. And what that means, we can't go into it much today, but just to review, what that means is that since by faith, Christian, if you have been crucified with Christ, right, if you've died with Christ, and now you have been raised with Christ, that means, guess what? You have a new life. You're living an entirely new, a whole new life. Colossians 3 said just a few verses before that your life is hidden with Christ in God. That is, we are sharing. Our very spiritual life means we are sharing with Christ the life that he enjoys after the grave. He died in sin on the cross, and he rose victoriously. 
that's the life that we have tapped into. That is the life that we live. In other words, you're living a resurrection life, which obviously means that this new life, it has to be different from the old life. This new life means you have a whole new reality, a whole new way of orienting your life. Your very identity is different. The way you think is different. What you value is different. And the way that you act is different, is totally different. This is really important for us to understand because Paul is using our new resurrection life as the logic for why we should battle sin. It's the reason that we should put on holiness and put off sinfulness. And so when we come to verse 5 and we read this startling command to put something to death, it makes more sense to us because we've been talking about life and death. Since we've already died with Christ, then we must die to our old way of life. You could put it like this. We've died, so we must live dead. Live dead to that old way of life, which means that we must kill the sin that remains. Now, there's much that could be said about this topic of killing sin or mortifying sin. But this morning, I'd like to draw your attention to just two major points. And the first point is to notice the command that you, Christian, are commanded by your Lord to kill sin. Doesn't matter how long you've been following Christ, doesn't matter how old you are or how young you are, we are called to enter into a daily, hourly war with sin. The second thing we notice is that we are given a strategy. A strategy. We are to kill sin, as we will see in a moment, by learning to hate what God hates. We are to kill sin by learning to hate what God hates. Let's start with the first one. As Christians, we are called to kill sin. You can see this clearly right here in verse 5, as it is in other places in the Bible. That those who have committed themselves to following Jesus Christ must also commit themselves to crucifying the sin that remains in their life. This may seem like a strange command, coming after what we have already heard in, in, um, in Ephesians and in Galatians, right? Haven't we been crucified with Christ? If we've already been crucified with Christ, why do, we need to stay, why do we need to stay at war with sin, right? Did Paul not just say in chapter 2, verse 20, that with Christ we've died to the elemental spirits of the world? We've already died to them. Why do we have to keep dying to them? Why do we continue in this battle? Well, the answer is that even though Christ has decisively defeated sin on the cross, we are still at war with sin in our bodies. Christians are still at war with sin in our bodies. In Romans chapter 8, verse 10, the Apostle Paul speaks about this conflict as a part of our daily experience. He says, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. That is, even though we as Christians now enjoy this new, vibrant, spiritual life because the spirit lives in us, our bodies are still dead because of sin. Our bodies are still given over 
to sinful tendencies. And we won't be totally free of that until the scripture teaches until we die and the body is put to death. Which means that for every single Christian, our daily lives are still a battle. This is how Peter viewed the Christian life. Listen to how severe his language is in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of your flesh which wage war against your soul. Do you think of your Christian life like that? That you have passions in your flesh that are warring? What, what happens in war? People are trying to kill each other, right? There's desire in our heart that is waging war against our soul. And Peter says, fight. Christians have a war going on in our hearts between the passionate, sinful desire of our flesh and the righteous desires of the new heart that's been given to us at, new, at regeneration. So we must take up that task of killing sin. What does it mean to kill sin? We often call this mortification, right, if you like big fancy words. What does it mean to, to kill sin? As much as I don't want to, let's go back to the sermon illustration for a moment. There are a number of ways as young boys growing up in North Carolina discover, there are a number of ways to kill a snake. Perhaps you learned this growing up. Perhaps you use this skill now. And I know, I know some snakes are good. What I get, if it's for the illustration, right? You could kill a snake by chopping its head off with a shovel. That was my, that's how I learned. Anyone learn how to kill a snake by chopping its head off the shovel? Oh, don't, y'all aren't snake people, are you, right? It's a Baptist church. All right, you could kill it by chopping its head off with a shovel. I suppose you could uh, throw it in a fire. may have done that when I was 12, right? I suppose you could crush it with a rock. Uh, but my favorite is you could, you could duct tape it to a rocket ship and shoot it into space. That is my preferred method, right? But whatever it is, no matter how you kill a snake, you have to deprive it of its life, right? You have to take, it's essentially the same thing. You have to take away something it needs to live. It's head, it's oxygen, right, water, uh, wh whatever, whatever it is. And it's the same thing that we are to do with sin. We need to deprive it of life, deprive it of what it needs to live. We need to stop giving sin opportunities to thrive in our lives. We need to be vigilant to do everything we can to make our free time, in our alone time, and the words that we use in conflict, and our Netflix watching, and our Instagram scrolling, we need to do all those things in a way that we make our environments as inhospitable to sin as possible. It's mortifying sin. That is, we are to weaken it. That's the key word here, to weaken sin by taking away what gives it strength. This is what Paul meant when he said in the book of Romans, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Starve it. I suppose if you withhold food from a snake long enough, you will starve it. Starve the appetite of the flesh, Paul says. Now, before we go any further, we need to note and we need to remember that the process of killing sin is something that is only given to believers. In fact, it's only possible for believers. 
If you look back at chapter 3, verse 1, you will notice that Paul is saying that all of this depends on this one massively important condition. He says, if you've been raised with Christ, then you're going to live in a certain way. And he gives all these commands that follow this condition, right? If you are a Christian, if you have been raised up with Christ, then you are to live in a certain way. My friends, if you're here today, and if you have not completely surrendered your life to Christ, I'm not talking about walking an aisle. I'm not even talking about being baptized. I'm talking about following Jesus Christ. If you have not confessed the guilt of your sin and your need for a Savior, if you have not placed your faith in Him to save you from your sins, if you've not renounced that old way of living, that old version of you, and taken up a new life, then you will not, in fact, you cannot have any success in killing sin. It's impossible. It's not possible. You're not at war with your sin. If you're not a Christian, you're not at war with your sin. You may think you are, but you're not. You are at peace. You have a snake living in your bed. You've given it a stuffed animal. You're totally happy together. You don't even know that you're in danger. For, thus, for those of us who follow Christ, we must remember you cannot be halfway in on following Jesus. The Christian life is described as one of life, right? We are born again, born again Christians. We are, that, that means that one is born, right? We have to die to our old life first, and then we are born again. You have to be crucified before you can be resurrected, right? That's how, that's how the order works. So we must die first. My friends, the sad reality is that for those who do not follow Christ, they don't have any hope of conquering sin in their lives. And their efforts will either lead to failure, or they just won't work, or they will lead even deeper into sin. Sometimes I call this sin swapping. This is how this works in the lives of many non-Christians, right? They get tired of one sin because it hurts or messes up their relationships or, or, or it affects their financial livelihood or whatever it is. And so they swap it out for some other sin that seems to be more acceptable culturally or doesn't seem to have as many consequences, whatever it is. But you see, that doesn't work. Because what makes sin sin is that it fails to give glory to God. And non-Christians can't do that. You cannot manage sin any more than you can manage a boa constrictor. And in fact, any attempt to manage sin without God's power will be a pitiful, disastrous affair. Much like what took place when the World Health Organization swept in to try to help the residents of Borneo get rid of the pesky houseflies that were swarming all over their interiors. Officials, meaning to help, sprayed down all the houses with a pesticide known as DDT. And just as planned, the DDT killed all the flies. But what the officials did not anticipate was that all of the gecko lizards who were native in that culture would now have an easy snack. Lots of dead flies contaminated with DDT. So the lizards would begin eating the dead flies. But guess what? They, too, got sick from DDT. And so they were easy prey for the cats who would stalk about. And so the cats would begin killing and 
This is a gross illustration, isn't it? Right? The cats would, would prey on the lizards, and guess what happened to the cats? Well, the cats begin to die. So guess what? When there's no cats, what are there lots of? Rats. The rats took over households, and people were beginning to get the bubonic plague. Right? So they got rid of the flies because those were annoying, and now they, people were in danger of the bubonic plague. Now, at this point, I hope that someone at the World Health Organization lost his or her job. But it was not before they came up with an interesting solution. In order to repair the break in the food chain, officials thought that it was a bright idea to fly in new cats and drop them out of helicopters. I'm not kidding. We've all seen cats. I mean, they land on their feet, right? So, I mean, I can just see some guy on a board. I got a great idea, guys. Let's fill helicopters with cats. You can have all mine. We'll drop them from the sky. Problem solved. It actually worked, right? Because the cats came and order was restored. But it shows that the pitiful effort to get rid of flies in Borneo is a lot like our efforts to try to get rid of sin without the power of the Spirit. It's a bungled mess. This doesn't mean that non-Christians can't make positive changes in their lives, right? Oprah's made a lot of money helping folks with this. It doesn't mean they can't make positive changes, but they can't do real battle with sin. There can't be lasting freedom. Sadly, their efforts are a lot like the guy trying to change light bulbs on the Titanic while it was going down. It was a lost cause because the ship is going down. The lesson here is for believers and non-believers alike. Fighting sin is a spiritual battle, and spiritual battles require spiritual weapons. And only those who are filled with God's spirit are even in the fight. And that's why Paul grounds all of this with our union with Christ. That is, the battle with sin, it must begin and end with Christ's work on the cross. John Owen, who is a famous writer who wrote quite a bit about this, he put it like this. He said, "Where there, he said, there's no death of sin without the death of Christ. And it's true. There's no death of sin without the death of Christ. All of our efforts as Christians, all of our efforts to kill sin and to grow, they're really just piggybacking on the decisive work that Jesus Christ has done on the cross. We're just riding his coattails, right? We've hitchhiked on his victory parade. He has won and we are hiding in his shadows. And yet, the call remains from Jesus himself to take up our crosses and to follow him as we crucify the sinful desires of our old selves. Now, there's much that's involved in this work of killing sin. But this morning, I want to draw your attention to one primary strategy. There are many in the Bible, lots, but this is one primary strategy, and that is this. Learn to hate what God hates. Cultivate hatred for sin in your heart. This sounds strange, doesn't it? That the path to personal holiness would include cultivating hate in our hearts? Not hate towards persons, right? But hatred towards evil. Hatred towards what is wrong. 
We need to practice loving the right things and hating the wrong things. I mean, do not the scriptures say, hate what is evil and cling to what is good. You'll notice here in our text this morning that the Apostle Paul lists off a number of negative virtues, right? Two sets of of negative virtues, things, sins in our lives that we need to learn to hate. If you look down at verse 5, the sins that are listed here are generally loosely associated together with sexual sin. But then if you look over a few verses, the the sins listed in verses 8 and 9 are generally uh, interpersonal sins. They're relational sins. But I want you to especially note in verse 6, this chilling promise. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Each one of these sins, one instance of one sin and one isolated event brings the wrath of God. Immorality, one thought of impurity, one evil desire. Each one of these in one instance is like a trigger that sets off the explosive wrath of God like a meteor or an intercontinental ballistic missile that is set into motion and coming towards us. Dear friends, if you're here today and you don't follow Christ, you have to understand that this is your future. The wrath of God set in motion like a missile. You need a shield. It's not just the big, bad, ugly sins like in verse 5. We might think those are worse than verses 8 and 9. It's not just the big sexual sins that, that bring God's wrath, but it's the angry words, the gossip, the slander, the criticism, making yourself look better, putting others down so that you feel better about yourself, posting pictures on Instagram that make you feel good about yourself and others feel bad. Don't forget about exaggerations and humble bragging and self-centered Facebook posts. All of those, each one of them, just one instance of sin. Even if it's muttered under your breath or entertained in your heart, it sets in motion an avalanche of God's fury. And all that is because God perfectly loves what is good and God perfectly hates what is evil? And who among us is not guilty of these things? Who among us has a life that has been totally free from these sins? And one of the keys to hating and putting to death these sins as they remain in our lives is to learn to hate them. So let's think about how this works for a few minutes. Out of all the commandments, Jesus gave hundreds of commands in the Bible, but do you remember? He said there's one that's more important than all the others. There's one that is primary, one that is first. Matthew 22, verse 7, Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And think about that for a moment. Jesus is saying that the most important thing about a person, the most important thing about a person is what she loves. That the measure of a soul The most accurate indicator of a person's holiness is what does he love and how much does he love it? Do you see? Jonathan Edwards spoke about this 
a lot, and he pointed out that the reason what we love and the reason that what we hate, the reason that tells us about the health and the beauty of our souls is because those affections reveal our true selves. They reveal what our hearts are really like. The reason for that is because there's a very real sense that you do not control what you hate and you do not control what you love. For example, everyone, let's just do an experiment. Everyone here, take a moment, get all your self-discipline going, right? Hopefully you've had coffee. I need coffee for self-discipline, right? Get all your self-discipline ready. Hate, no, love wasp stings. Did you do it? Do you love wasp stings? Okay, okay, let's try another one. Hate chocolate. Some of y'all are giving me the evil eye now, right? It doesn't work, right? Because, because you can't, that's not an act of the will, but it's an outpouring of what our souls, or taste buds, already find attractive and beautiful. Our loves and our hates reveal the beauty of our souls. They reveal our holiness. Holiness is loving the right things in the right way, namely God and loving Christ's glory. Do you know why? Did you know that this is why the Father loves the Son so much? Listen to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 9. This is what God the Father says about Christ. He says, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. In other words, God is saying that the reason that he loves the son so much, the reason the father looks on the son and says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased, it's because Jesus loves the right things and hates the right things. And it is for that very reason that Christ will be exalted above all other names. And you'll notice that Jesus' holiness is not just what he loves, but also that he hates wickedness. That makes sense, right? Because loving righteousness and hating wickedness are really two sides of the same coin. And so if we're going to be like Jesus, if we're going to be transformed into the image of his son, for being renewed in that image, then we are to, like Jesus, hate evil itself. In fact, that's what sanctification is, right? As we grow more like Jesus, we will learn to love what Jesus loves, and we will learn to hate what Jesus hates. That's what it means to be like Jesus. We've got to be like him in what he loves and hates. And what, is, what does he love the most? What does God love the most? He loves the glory of Christ, and he wants everyone to see it and everyone to delight in it. And he hates sin. And what is sin? Well, sin is anything that takes away from the glory of Christ. And we are to grow in the same. And we, as we do, we will come to fulfill the great commandment of loving God with all our hearts more and more. This is the business of the Christian life. This is how we fight against sin. And let me encourage you, if you're a Christian, if you're already here today, and if you're a Christian this important work has already begun in you. It began the moment that you were given new life. The moment you're born again, our loves and our affections and our hates were beginning to be rearranged by God. 
That's what it means to be given a new heart, right? The heart is the desire center of your being. But think about how this worked, right? Before conversion, evil attracted us. Well, we wouldn't say it like that, right? But evil things, wicked things, drew us in. And Christ repulsed us. We saw Christ as doing nothing but taking away our fun, giving us rules. The Bible says that this is how the world has always seen Christ. Do you remember Isaiah 53? This servant was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, so he was despised. The Bible says, we esteemed him not. But then when the Spirit of God opens our eyes to see the beauty of Christ, everything changes. What is despised by the world now becomes attractive for me. Remember the song, The Old Rugged Cross? It talks about how that emblem of suffering and shame has become attractive to me. Suddenly, we see the glory of the gospel of Christ in Jesus. Suddenly, this man who we once despised and rejected became attractive and compelling to us. At the new birth, when we were raised with Christ, we're given a new heart that has new loves and new hates. Now we love the word of God. We want to hear it. Now we want to hear God's voice, not perfectly, but now we want to hear him speak to us. And we want to obey him. We want to do things that please him. We're beginning to love what God loves and hate what God hates. And the whole process of sanctification is growing in this and doing it more and more and more. And this morning, because of verse 6, we have singled out learning to hate what God hates. It's not just Paul that thought like this. In Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13, Solomon put it so succinctly. He said, the fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. The fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. But the big question is, how do we cultivate this, right? How do we get on to the more and more part? How do we grow in this? How can we hate sin the way God hates sin? Or to be really practical, because this is really what we want, right? How can we grow to hate sin so that we don't want to do it anymore? How can we grow so that sin is as appetizing to us as a bowl of vomit. Because I can assure you, God hates sin even more than that. And if we can come to see our sin like that, no one goes back to that stuff, except for dogs. When we come to see, like, when we come to see sin the way God sees sin, sin loses its appeal. Well, I think the key to that is in this text. It's there in verse 6. Remember the wrath of God. Even as Christians, I believe that God is calling us to remember the wrath of God and to connect, to carefully practice seeing our sin as severe, to connect the wrath of God to specific instances of sin. 
to pause and to consider carefully that every single sin rightly and justly merits eternal destruction. Hell is not an overreaction of a cranky God. Hell is the right reaction to sin. We're just used to minimizing it. We need to see sin afresh as dangerous, such that we would see that it threatens eternal destruction and eternal separation from the living God who's the very source of life. Hell is a reminder to us of how gross sin is. Friends, if you're here today and if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you have to understand that hell is what you have earned and you're waiting, it's waiting for you. Hell is a reminder to Christians and non-Christians alike of the danger of sin. It reminds us of the wrath of God. And the good news is, friend, is you can flee from his wrath today by running to Jesus Christ, to turning to him in faith and following him. And God will open your eyes to see his beauty. And you have life everlasting. Hell reminds us of the danger of sin. And for Christians... We too, we remember that not only does hell remind us of the wrath of God, but also the cross. The cross reminds us of the wrath of God. Oh, Christian, if you're struggling with some area of sin in your life, you've been convicted about it, but you're not making progress. It is just, you're comfortable with it. You're just, you just feel the spirit's prick and you just ignore and you just push away and you keep going. Maybe you stay in that relationship, teenager. Maybe you're continuing in some behavioral pattern. Maybe you're not giving something up. Look at the cross. If you find your heart indifferent to your failures, lift your eyes. See on Calvary a bleeding Savior hanging on a cross for the very sin you are so flippantly committing right now. Let your heart be seared by the cross as the clearest statement of how much God hates our sin and how seriously God takes it. The cross reveals, yes, the love of God for us, but it also reveals the wrath of God. Not only so, but so much that God killed Jesus. Let your heart be broken over your sin. Let your contribution to the death of Christ come before you. But let me plead with you, don't stay there for long. Take that broken heart, take that repulsion of sin, run to Jesus. Because the cross reveals God's wrath towards sin, but it also reveals God's love for sinners. Take it to the cross for relief. Yes, the cross reveals God's hatred for sin, but it reveals his love for sinners. And so marvel at God's gracious dealings with you as a sinner. That evildoers such as you and I can enjoy the favor of God in Christ. Do you see how in this process Christ becomes more lovely to you when your sin is before you? Do you see how when you consider the cross, that sin becomes more appalling? 
brothers and sisters, this is how we kill sin. By meditating on the cross of Christ, where we simultaneously see God's intense hatred for sin and his intense sacrificial love for sinners. Crucified with Christ. Therefore, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives for me. Lift your eyes, behold, worship, and turn from evil. I close with the exclamation of the psalmist in Psalm 97, verse 10, where he says, You who love the Lord hate evil. And also with Romans 8, verse 1, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm going to ask the musicians to come up, and we're going to take a time of a time to, to respond to God's word. When we hear God's word, we are called to respond. And so as we do, I would like to invite you to turn your heart now in an attitude of prayer before the Lord. And ask him to reveal to you areas of your life that you need to turn over. Ask the Spirit of God to reveal parts of your heart that you have grown comfortable with. Perhaps some of you this morning need to recommit yourself to doing battle with sin because you've gotten used to it. And perhaps the Spirit is giving you direction on some act you need to take to repent. Don't quench the Spirit. Perhaps there's some of you this morning who do not know Christ, yet in this service, the Spirit is opening your eyes to see His beauty and your need for a Savior. Don't wait any longer. Turn to Him by faith and live. I'm going to ask you to stand, and we're going to sing together. Respond to the Lord. You can do that by coming to the front and praying at the altar or speaking with me, or you can do so quietly as you stand there. Let's sing together.